We're bookending this semester with two series on faith. We started off with big faith, and now we're bringing it down to the ground level and talking about real faith. And if you missed last week's message, you can catch it online or you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and you can listen to it there. But as we come to our second installment of this Real Faith series, I want to begin our time off with a question. And that question is, why on earth are you all here? Why are are you here? I mean, you've heard me say this before, right? Like, as a college student... You can be anywhere on a Sunday morning. I could, I could think of a dozen places right off of the top of my head where you can be as a college student other than sitting in a church service. Like, why on earth are you here? Yeah, has that thought ever crossed your mind? Like, why am I sitting in church? Or, you know, like, what, what am I doing here? Or to put it differently, why do you come to church on Sundays? For some of you, it's every week. For others of you, it's whenever you can. But even at that, why bother coming at all? You know, for those of you who grew up in a Christian home or a religious family, I can understand why you might come to church, because growing up as a kid, that's just kind of what you did, right? You're like, you had no choice. You had to go. Mom and dad made you go. But now you're college students. You have freedom and some freedom and liberty at your disposal. And so of all the places you can be, why be here? Why are you here? Now, let me just clarify before you start feeling a little uneasy and uncomfortable in your seats. I'm not having a bad day, and I'm not taking it out on you, all right? I'm not having this, like, existential crisis as a a church family or anything like that. I'm not about to kick you all out of here. The reason why I'm asking these questions is because today's passage seems to address the core of this very issue. The writer of today's passage, David, seems to write an address on this very issue of why we gather in the house of the Lord in the first place. And in our case, why we gather in the hub, week in and week out. Coincidentally, the temple, the city of Jerusalem, was often known as the hub for God's presence. And we are in the hub. And so the question that I want us to grapple with is why, why have we gathered here? Why do we do this thing? Why why do we come here week in and week out to this place of worship, to this hub? Why do we do this? And I'd like to take a look at this passage and see what God might have for us here today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm chapter 122, Psalm 122. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll have some folks coming around and they'll get you a Bible in your hands. If you don't own a personal copy of the Bible, Consider this our gift to you. You can take this home with you. You can mark it up, and uh, we don't expect it to be returned. And uh, we just want you to be in the Word, okay? We want you to own a Bible, be in, be in God's Word. If you're following along with, with us in these Bibles, we're on page 517. 517 is where we are. Now, if you were here last week, you'll notice that Psalm 122 is nestled in in this collection of these 15 psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms of Ascent, and and just as a refresher, uh, for those of you who were here last week, just bear with me. These psalms were songs that were sung by the Jewish community as they ascended into the city of Jerusalem, hence the Psalms of Ascent, as they ascended into the city of Jerusalem for their annual three worship festivals. And they would ascend into into the city of Jerusalem, and they would sing these songs collectively together in one voice, I imagine. I don't know their musical abilities, but they sang these songs together as a reminder that they were pilgrims on a journey. 
the pilgrims on a journey, but not just in a literal sense, that they were literally journeying to Jerusalem, but also in a spiritual sense, that they were on a journey towards God. And friends, isn't that the kind of journey you and I are? where we are journeying towards God, where we are trying to make sense of this faith and make it real in our lives, walk in real faith, a spiritual journey towards God. And as we journey towards God here at ACF here this morning, I want to draw our attention to Psalm 122, and I want to see what, see what this text has for us. Now, I'd like to do what we did last week and uh, stand and read this aloud together, uh, and because this is how it was meant to be read, or, or sung, rather. Um, and, and so I'm going to be working out of the English Standard Version. Usually it doesn't matter what version you read out of, but for the sake of this moment, if you want to go over and flip over to an ESV Bible, or we'll have the text up here on the screen for you to read along with us. But here's what I'd like to do. I'd like for all of us to go ahead and stand to our feet. Go ahead and stand to your feet. And I'd like for us to read this out loud together. It's only nine verses, so I believe it is manageable here. And so I like to start from the very top and go all the way through to verse nine. Psalm 122, this is what it says. Let's read aloud together. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now, as a quick sidebar, before you sit down, for those of you who are in life groups here at ACF, I know that you, for those of you who are tracking with our sermon series, you may have read this passage this past week, and maybe this is your first time reading it, and, and you're having the same response that some of our life groups had. You read it, and you're like, what? Well, what, what is it? well, I don't understand what, the, what this psalm is saying, right? Like, some of you guys are like, yeah, I've read the psalm, and I'm not really sure what it's saying. Well, we're going to try to interpret this passage here together this morning. And so I want to go to the Holy Spirit of God, who is the great interpreter, the great physician, the great professor of hermeneutics, and help us see what this passage is saying. And so let's pray for a moment and invite God's Holy Spirit to illuminate the word and the truth of God here this morning. Jesus, we fix our gaze, we fix our eyes on you. We have sung to you, we have sung of you, and now help us to encounter you in your word. Holy Spirit of God, we ask that you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see. Open our ears to hear what you want us to hear. Open up our hearts, our lives, and our hands to receive all that you have for us here this morning. So Lord, lead us through Psalm 122 so that we might walk away from this place with some kingdom deposits in our account that we can walk out in real faith. So go before us in this way, and it's in the strong name of Jesus we pray, and everyone said... Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Now, folks, listen. If we were to ask the same question that I asked you at the start of this service to the Hebrew people during this time, why on earth are you here? Why on earth are you making this travel to Jerusalem of all the places you can be? Why would you choose to make that journey? Why would you go to church? I imagine they may say something along the lines of, 
We go because worship matters. We go because worship matters. And that's our big idea for today. Worship matters. And for the rest of our time this morning, I, I want to unpack this concept of worship and just why it matters. And hopefully by the end of our time, you'll be convinced, just as the people of Psalm 122 were convinced, that worship matters. Now I wonder if that would be our response. When I asked you, why, why are you here? Why did you choose to wake up, brush up, and get ready for some of you? Probably got to brush up a little more. That's okay. We love you, right? Like, why, why, why go to those lengths to come to church? Why are you here? I wonder if our response would be that worship matters. Now, before we go on, I think it's important that we make a clarification, that, that we get on the same page when talking about worship. And so what do we, what do we mean by worship? For those of us who grew up in the church, we may think of worship as, as kind of the singing time in a particular gathering such as this. We, we think of the first 15 minutes of a Sunday service as worship. In fact, for some of us, we may even think of a full hour or hour and a half, or depending on what kind of church background you come from, maybe three hours. I forget who I was talking to. I was talking to someone last week, and they said, yeah, you know, I grew up in a church where worship services would last for three to four hours. I'm like, man, I'm not sure I'd be a Christian. I'd be like, that is a long time to worship. And, and so whatever length of time you have in mind, maybe for you, you think that's worship. I mean, after all, many of us call this thing that we do here every Sunday a worship service, a worship gathering. And while all of those ideas fall under this umbrella of worship, worship is so much larger than that. In fact, let me give you a working definition for worship here this morning. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down here. Um, this isn't the only definition. This, isn't, this might not even be the best definition. I'm not suggesting you go out and get a tattoo of this definition on your body. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is, based out of Psalm 122, based out of God's Word, here's what we derive when it comes to worship. Worship, listen now, is our joyful act of obedience that invites God's restoration to all things. Worship, when we think about worship in light of this text here this morning, what we find is that worship is our joyful act of obedience that invites God's restoration to all things. Now, let me try to break this definition down for you into some bite-sized pieces and help you see why worship matters so much. The first part is this. Worship is a joyful act. Worship is a joyful act. I, I love how the psalm starts off. Right from the very beginning, verse 1, I was, what does it say? Glad. I was glad. I was joyful. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, I grew up in a, in a Christian home. Uh, any, more, any one of us grew up in a Christian home, grew up in the church, right? Like went to, went to church all my life. I, I remember I did not miss a Sunday. That was the Lord's Day. You can't miss a Sunday. In fact, you can't do anything but go to church on Sunday. You don't go to the movies. You don't go buy stuff at the store. Like that, that, was, that was how I grew up. You know, that, that the Lord, Sunday was the Lord's Day. And I remember every Sunday morning, mom and dad would call out to me and they would say, son, time to get ready for church. I have a confession to make. I cannot in good conscience say that I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Anyone with me? I, I, I was not gl Gladness would not have been a word I would have chosen to describe my state of mind as I was putting on my little boy khaki shorts and my button-down shirt. I was not glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. 
It's interesting how things play out. Now I'm pastoring in the church. I hated going to church as a kid. Now I'm pastoring in the church. It's funny how things work out. Speaking of how funny things work out, I'm seeing this now play out in my kids' lives. My kids hate going to church. I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. Like, I need exercising demons, praying for them, and speaking tongues. I don't know what's happening here, but I, I, I need to be praying for my kids. When Saturday night comes, I tuck them into bed at night, and I give each of them a kiss on the head, and I say, sleep tight. We've got church tomorrow. Friends, you would have thought I said, we've got nothing but homework to do tomorrow. Chores all day, or day. You know what I mean? Like, you are not going to have anything to eat but vegetables. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. No, and not even the snacks. Nothing but broccoli. You are going to do nothing that resembles anything of fun, excitement, and enjoyment. No fun for you. That's what my kids hear when they hear, we've got church tomorrow. At least I'm convinced that's what they hear. I'm not sure exactly what they hear. Now, I want to take it one step further. We don't just see this picture of dread during their pregame warm-up of getting ready for church. For a lot of churches, when we step into churches, what we find is that dread seems to have followed people into the church. You know what I mean? Like, I, and, and this is an indictment on us or anything like that. That's going to come in just a minute, so hang tight, okay? Uh, but, but most churches today, it seems as though it's like you look around and you've got to wonder, who made you come to church? Because it certainly don't look like you want to be here. It looks like mom and dad dr drug you out here. And, and can I, church, can I be real with you here just for a minute? Just going to be just honest. We're a family, right? I can be honest with you. Um, can I share with you the unique perspective I have from this platform when I look out at all your beautiful faces on a given Sunday morning. Now, I say unique, but the worship team, you guys can resonate with this probably. Like, we've had some conversations to this end before. Do you want to see what I see when I look out at you guys on a given Sunday morning? I imagine it resembles something like this. It's like, huh? What am I doing here? Now, listen. This is, even this is too cute. I can, I can deal with this. If 90% of you guys look like this, I'd be like, okay, this is a preachable room. I can, I, can, I can work with this. But really, the more accurate image might be something like this. I mean, let's just be real. It's like, who made you come to church? Because this is not an easy face to preach to. I mean, this is like, come on, come on. Right, now, let me, let me just, let me say this. I'm not suggesting that you sit there with a weird grin on your face staring up. I mean, that's not, that is a, that is a bad alternative. I'd, I'd be freaked. I'd be like, what is going on here? Why are all you guys smiling? I mean, is it making me feel like I have something wrong with me? Like, I, and, and so I'm not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting, hear me, church, that in the atmosphere, in the environment where the people of God gather together for worship, don't you think there ought to be a little bit of joy in the room? Don't you think there ought to be a little bit of spring in our worship experience? See, worship is to be a joyful act, not a dreadful act. Worship should be what it was to us, what it was to the Jewish community. When, they, when the Old Testament folks were traveling up to Jerusalem, they went to these worship festivals, not worship funerals, right? Like that. For, for some of us, we, we approach worship like that. And, and the worship should be filled with rejoicing and thanksgiving and praise. In fact, if you spend any time in the book of Psalms, it is tattered. The pages are filled. It is bleeding. It's oozing out with joyful 
worship. Psalm 47 says, clap your hands, all you nations. By the way, folks, how many of you know it's okay to clap in church? Can I give you permission to say it's okay to clap in church? You see those two things that God gave in front of you that dangle down here? When you put those things together, it makes a noise. Look at that. Like, you can do that in church. That's allowed. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. Psalm 100, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord, and he says, with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Psalm 98, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth. I love that picture, breaking forth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Psalm 95, oh, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of salvation. Worship is to be a joyful act, not a dreadful act. I was glad. I was glad. They said to me, let us go to the house. Now, I wonder, I wonder if the reason why so few of us actually see joy in worship is because so few of us actually see the call to worship. I wonder if the problem isn't necessarily finding joy in worship, but I wonder if the real issue here is understanding the call to worship. And the call to worship is a call to obedience. And that's point number two. Worship is an act of obedience. Worship is not just a joyful act, but it is our joyful act of obedience. The psalmist continues on in verses 3 and following. He says these words, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. There's this picture of Jerusalem that is the most fortified city in the ancient Near East. And what you find is that no stone was out of place. This, this city of Jerusalem, the holy city of God, was bound firmly together. And verse 4, it says, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. And now what the psalmist is doing here, just before we go on, is he's painting us a picture of the journey towards worship. He's giving us a worship picture. He describes the place of worship as Jerusalem, and rightly so, because that's where the, the temple was in the city of Jerusalem. And he says the tribes of the Lord, the tribes of the Lord, all go up to this city. Now, Bible pop quiz, how many tribes of Israel were there? Twelve. Twelve tribes of Israel all occupying different, different parts of the land in the ancient Middle East. And I love this picture that, that, that David is painting for us, to which the tribes, go, all the tribes of the Lord go up, and all the tribes coming together for this one purpose. And what's that purpose? Worship. Worship. You know why I love that picture so much? Because it's a picture of our church here on campus. I love that picture so much because in a lot of ways, it shows us a picture here on campus. Here at ACF, I don't know if you know this, we've got Baptists worshiping next to Presbyterians who are worshiping next to Pentecostals who are worshiping next to Methodists and Lutherans and Mennonites and, and, and non-denominational, interdenominational, quasi-denominational, and I don't know what a denomination is. I'm just here because of worship. And so, so some of us are just worshiping side by side with people that maybe even have no faith background, no faith background at all, and we come together every single week here in the hub because at the end of the day, only one thing matters. It ain't your denomination. It ain't your worship preference. It ain't where you come from, what city you were born and raised in. 
At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is exalting and lifting the name of Jesus. Can someone say amen here this morning? Lifting the name of Jesus is the only thing, is the only reason why we gather here, all the tribes gather here in the first place. In fact, it shows kind of this, it ends up resembling the city of Jerusalem in some ways that is bound firmly together by this greater call. And that call is a call to obedience. Where does that call come up? In the rest of verse 4. To which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel. As was decreed for Israel, and here was the decree, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. To give thanks to the name of the Lord, to worship. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. The call to worship, friends, is a call to obedience. Folks, let me, let me be real clear here. We do not worship because we feel like it. To be honest with you, there are some Sundays I come in, and I'm supposed to be pastor, but I and don't front you guys have been there too right like I come to church I just don't feel it I don't feel it in fact I'm going to wait for the worship team to drum up enough excitement in me so that they could pull me and make me feel like worshiping and, 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 but let me just be real clear here we do not worship because we feel like it we worship because God decreed that's it we don't worship because we feel like it we worship because God decreed it. And this is where we get ourselves into some trouble because we attach our feelings to this call to worship. Now, don't get me wrong. For those of you who know me, I'm a feelings guy. I love feeling things. I love feeling things. When Jake, our drummer, he is pounding on that drum, man, I'm feeling it. I love it. I love it. When, when, when Ethan is digging into his guitar, I say, dig deeper, brother, dig deeper, because I love it. When, when Gabby is singing so angelically, so powerfully, there is something in me that so deeply resonates, and, 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 and I love those feelings. But let me be real clear here. Feeling things is not the goal of worship. It's not the goal of worship. If that's the goal of worship, you're going to walk out disappointed every single time. It's not the goal of worship. Obedience to God, listen now, is not only the goal of worship, it is the ultimate act of worship. Not just the goal, obedience to God. It is the greatest act of worship you can offer. When we, when we obey God, it is like a fragrant offering of worship to our God. Obedience in every part of our lives. Now, understand this. Obedience is simply saying yes to God. Whatever he calls you to, whenever he calls you, not just on a Sunday morning, not just when we're singing, not outside. And when we go through the week, when God calls us to obey, obedience is saying yes to God. When we obey God, it is like a fragrant offering of worship that is offered to God. I love what Eugene Peterson says. Eugene Peterson, if, if that name is new to you, where is it in Idaho? Uh, first of all. But secondly, Eugene Peterson is the guy who wrote the message. And the message is, has been a, 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 a widely selling uh, uh, paraphrased version of the Bible. And I love the message. I love what, how it feeds my soul in different ways. Eugene Peterson is also a pastor. He is an author. And, and he's just a prominent hero of the Christian faith. And I love what he says here. Listen to what he says. I'm going to put this quote up. He says this. We live in what one writer has called... The age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. 
That's what the age of sensation says. If you don't feel it, it ain't worth doing it. You got to feel it, right? But listen, he goes on. He says, but the wisdom of God says something different, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Let that sink in. This is so deeply profound and true that the wisdom of God says something vastly different, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. How many of you have waited to feel like going on a diet? How many of you have waited to feel like getting in shape, waiting to go, to, you know, uh, get your gym membership or whatever? Like, how many of you waited? You end up waiting a long time, people. Like, sometimes it never happens. You see, the wisdom of God says sometimes the call to obedience is saying yes, even when you're not feeling it, and that feeling of yes will eventually follow along. You may not feel like doing this with the thing that God is calling you to, but the wisdom of God says when you say yes, though you don't feel it in the moment, that feeling will almost always catch up. He goes on and says, worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. That's an important distinction. That's his call to obedience. Worship is an act of obedience. He wraps up the quote by saying, when we obey the command to praise God in worship, our deep, essential need to be in relationship with God is spiritual. I love that. I love that. That when we say yes to God, to the command to praise Him, to worship Him in every area of our lives, what ends up happening is our deep, essential need to be in relationship with God is virtue. Worship is not about feeling certain things. Worship is about obedience to the one true God. Now, the question that might creep into some of our minds at this point in the message is why? Why? Why does God decree or why does God command us to worship, and that leads us to our third and final point, and that is worship invites God's restorative act. Worship invites God's restorative act. Remember now, worship is our joyful act of obedience, but that invites God's restoration to all things. God is in the business of restoring all things, making all things new. We sang about it earlier. In fact, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate it through our baptism service where people are going to stand up. And I love this for this very reason. I love this because this is an opportunity where people get to stand up and say, hey, God did something new in my heart. God did something new in my life. I am no longer the same person that I used to be. I might struggle like all everyone else. I might deal with life and face life's trials and tribulations like everyone else, but I don't face it without hope. My life is completely turned around because of what Jesus has done for me. God is in the business of making all things new. And when we worship in every part of our lives, not just on a Sunday morning, but we make every part of our lives a joyful act of obedience, here's what's happening. We are inviting the restorative work of God into our lives and into the world around us. Listen to how the psalm ends here. In verse 6, he says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now the word for peace that's used here 
three times is the word shalom, which is, which is closely related to the word security or good, shalom. And it's a word that's kind of hard to capture. It's a, it's a word that's a little bit hard to, to capture in a single sentence. And so I want to play a short video here. Ben, uh, if you don't mind, just go ahead and hit the lights here in just a moment. Um, it's a short little three-minute video or so that, that's going to help us understand this concept of shalom. Because again, that's not a word that we, we use every day, uh, but, but I appreciate the way this video presents this concept of shalom, and I'll, and I'll wrap us up here after we play the video. So let's uh, take a look. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say, Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. 
And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. Hey, thanks for watching this word study video by The Bible Project. We make lots of other videos and they're all about showing how the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. You can go to our website, thebibleproject.com, see what we're working on, and even jump in to pitch in a few bucks to the next one. Thanks for being a part of this with us. Thanks, you guys. Now, let me try to bridge this for us in the remaining few minutes that we have here. The peace of God, the shalom of God, is not just the absence of conflict. Right? It's not the absence of war. It is the fullness of God's restorative work in humanity. It, it, it is God's restoration of all things that are broken. Now, church, I don't know about you, but I can think of a few things in my life that are broken. Uh, I, if I, I can point to a few areas in my own life, in my own soul, the condition of my own soul that are broken. I think about my vices. I think, I think about my sin patterns, my tendencies, my unhealthy tendencies. I think about my dysfunctions. I think about my flaws and my imperfections. I think about my insecurities and my fears. I think about all these places are, that, are, that are flawed and broken inside of me. And I'm guessing that you've got some of those places in your life too. Now what worship does is it invites God's shalom into our lives. God's restorative work into all of those broken and ugly places into our lives. That's the beauty of worship. Worship helps us get our eyes off of our own junk and helps us fix our eyes on the one who can actually do something about it. That's what worship does. That's why we sing songs of worship. That's why we gather here in this place. It's not so that we can gather up and be like, you're dysfunctional, so am I, hooray. No, it's not to celebrate our brokenness. It's to celebrate who God is in the midst of our brokenness. It's to celebrate the shalom of God, the restorative work of God in this place. And that's what worship does. That's why David says, peace be within your walls and security within your towers. But listen, the shalom of God doesn't end there with us. It actually extends beyond us and into the world. The very next verse continues on and he says, did you find this peculiar? He says, for my brothers and companions' sake, for, for the sake of other people, I will say, peace be within you. You see, we are not just called to experience the shalom of God, but we are called to be the people of God who bring the shalom of God into the world. Or as Paul puts it, you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Now go. Go. Reconcile man to God. When we incorporate worship into every aspect of our lives, not just on a Sunday morning, please, let's expand the view of our worship beyond that. We're able to see God's restorative work all around us. Friends, how many of you know God is at work all around us? God is at work all or in the midst of all that is broken in the world. You've got to understand, number one, God is still in control, and number two, God is still at work. God is not phased by the headlines that we see in our newsfeed. God is not rattled by the newsfeed that we see. God is not shaken on his throne by what's happening in the world. God is still in control, and he is still at work. He's still bringing the shalom of God, the restorative work of God into the world. And what worship does, it, it invites us into what God is doing. Isn't that crazy that God looks to us, a ragtag group of a couple of hundred college students who barely know what we're doing here on a given week, but God invites you and I 
to join him in this divine work, this cosmic work of bringing the shalom of God here on earth. That we are called to be people of shalom. That not only are we to experience the shalom of God, but then we are to take the shalom of God into a broken, fractured world. That's, that's mind-blowing. I'm humbled by that. I'm actually a little insecure about that. God, can I do that? So I feel like Moses, not me, not I. Send, send Aaron, send, send someone else, not, not me. But God, but that's what worship does. Worship gets our eyes off of us and what we can't do and gets our eyes fixed on what God can do. God can do this and God calls us to partner with him and join him in the work of bringing peace and shalom. 